Are you wanting to create a highly prosperous photography business doing what you love? Or maybe you have a great business already and want to up your game? Then you're in the right place. Master craftsman photographer Lucy Dumas and her guests are here to support you on your journey. Now here's your hostess and tour guide, Lucy. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And that's from The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. <laughs> Bad French. And interestingly, this is my favorite quote, and it is my lovely and amazing guest's quote. So welcome to The Profitable Photographer again. I'm having a little scratchy allergy throat. So if I'm, <clears throat> just please forgive me. <laughs> I want to encourage you to jump over to lucydumas.com and download my ebook and my seven steps for attracting ideal clients. And of course, get in touch if you want to learn more about coaching or any other way I can support you. So all that being said, I want to introduce you to somebody that I have known and admired and followed and been taught by for <laughs> longer than I really want to name. So Elizabeth, do you think it's maybe 25 years? Could so, be. How long have you been teaching? I've been teaching going on 35 or 40. So Elizabeth Opelenik is an amazing fine art photographer and educator. She lives and works in Oakland, but this peripatetic artist, I like that word, is often on the move. She believes that all good photographs are self-portraits that lie somewhere between imagination and dreams. She's been a sought-after teacher for her 40-year career, and her work is collected, published, and exhibited internationally. In addition, she travels with the Medical Ministry International, documenting projects of eye doctors, in Colombia, Bolivia, and Amazon. She's an amazing artist, and one of my listeners had requested that I interview people who have been in the art world in the profitable photographer scope. So, and he mentioned Elizabeth as a suggestion. And I was like, oh my gosh, Elizabeth, yes. So Elizabeth, welcome and thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Lucy. It's nice to be in touch with you again. I know. So I want to know a little bit about your story of becoming a teacher of fine art photography or just a little of your background. Well, essentially in 1979, I went to the main photographic workshops to take a two-week, probably intermediary kind of photography. They asked me on a scale of 10, how much do you know about photography? I thought, well, I have a dark room and I'm I, I am printing black and white photography, so Ooh. I must be at least a 10. And I realized within a day or two that I wasn't even a minus 10. At the end of the two weeks, I came home. I sold everything I had. I was maybe 33 at the time. Had my own construction and design business in Connecticut. Went back for a three-month program. They gave me a scholarship for another three-month program. The following summer, they made me the direct facilities director. And I never essentially came home. And I think I ended up much more involved in the workshop way of thinking because my first teacher, Kate Carter, who had become a very good friend, was killed in a car crash in 1984. And we had a similar eye and I kind of stepped in when Kate had died in some way. I feel like I, I stepped into a place of being there. We were working together in the France program in Provence. And that would have been the second year that I was involved with the program. And so then I kept going back and 
then I, you know, just became like the assistant instructor instead of just an assistant, along with Craig Stevens, who was running the program at that point, and when ultimately transitioned into pretty rapidly teaching my own programs. And I think it's because I came to photography with life lessons more than the other stuff, and I learned it along the way. Ooh, what do you mean by that? Well, I was 33 when I probably started. And so I had life lessons. And while I was doing photography, it was nothing of note at all. That wasn't, I just did it as a passion. But, you know, at that time I was probably photographing, you know, bees on flowers. You know, I can't remember, but I was, I was not in any way a photographer. You know, I had a lot of other careers prior to coming to photography. So when I got involved with it, you know, I had a decent eye and I had encouragement from, let's say, Kate and Craig, of course, in the early years. And I could have gone on a few other paths that were commercial, more commercial than how I ended up being mostly an educator. But life throws things in your way. And in 1986, so that you have to realize that's only six or seven years after I started photography, I had a major car crash and I had a major head injury. So I was starting down the path of commercial work but I couldn't remember to put film in my camera. Mm. So you don't get to be a commercial photographer <laughs> if you screw up a number of things. And I was doing commission portraits around that time, probably. So maybe a client would be more forgiving, but certainly Life Magazine or anything like that wasn't going to be. So I took it upon myself to back away from the commercial work because it was really too stressful for me. Mm -hmm. I did get a rep in London in the early 90s, and I worked for a year or so commercially doing work. They, but they were hiring me to do what I already comfortably knew how to do, which was pretty much hand-painted black and white campaigns. And that was okay. And they were billboards in London and that sort of stuff. And it was lovely, you know, $10,000 a day, which is, you know, more than I can make in a month sometimes. So, you know, that was all lovely. You know, that yes. was a lovely thing. That was a beautiful thing to do for a year or two. And it was still a lot of pressure because I still wasn't in totally my right mind. And I was moving to Europe to work with this rep because that was part of the deal at the time I lived in Connecticut. And I met my husband in a workshop. And I ended up getting married and moving to California. And essentially, you know, the line was, you know, you're moving six hours in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, living in California made it harder. You have to think back to the time. That's not what it is today. You know, communication or getting anything done online is a whole different world in the way we operate commercially. But back then it was still, you know, machines had to be, it was still the side techs or it was still things all taking a lot longer to handle in the yep. early 90s. When you say getting a rep, was this a rep for your art photography? Yeah. Uh, well, well, essentially it was because even at that point, I was only known more for maybe some magazine work, but more for gallery artwork. Getting a rep came from having done a lot of hand-painted work, just personal work. And I was really struggling struggling financially because I'd had this head injury. I was easily $100,000 in debt from mm -hmm. medical bills mm -hmm. and was single and was very good at not letting people know how 
struggling I was. So I was hiding a lot of, you know, what was really going on in my life. And I was still working in my design sort of construction business because I had some, you know, good clients. And one of them was in New York on Park Avenue. And I had done his house in Connecticut. And he said, can you come do my apartment in New York? You know, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks. And he wanted it wallpapered. And I was a whiz at that. So it was a, you know, it was a job. And I was down in New York City wallpapering his apartment crying in the paste because I thought I'm a good photographer. What am I? Why am I here? Wallpaper. And I thought <laughs> I was done with this. I mean, it was, I remember, I distinctly remember the day mm. when I was doing a big woe is me. And I got a call from a friend of mine who was a writer on an American express campaign. And she called me and she said, look, you know, we're in here talking about getting this project done for American Express and it's hand painted. And she goes, my God, you're so much better than everybody else whose work we're looking at. Do you have a portfolio that you could bring in and show? And I said, well, ironically, I'm in New York and I had a, I had a portfolio in the car. And they needed hmm. to see that day because they were going to make the decision. So I called the agency because I did not have a commercial portfolio at that time. And I called the, the art director and I said, look, I happen to be in New York on a job. I only have my fine art portfolio with me because I was seeing a gallery. I'm working in New York is what I said. Yes. <laughs> Which is true. I'm working in New York. And uh, I said, but I can bring this over. So fortunately, I had a change of clothes with me also. So I went over to the agency. I took it in and I met with the junior art director, the senior art director, and the writer who was the person that I knew who had recommended me. They all went out, the junior art and the senior art director saying, yeah, but you know, we need to see some commercial work. And the junior art director said, oh my God, we've been looking at portfolios. This work is obviously better than anything we've seen. Let's just give her the job. <laughs> so the senior art director walked out, the junior art director turned to me and said, your first job, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I and I looked at her, you know, and she was a farm girl who did good, you know, working in New York, but she was from like West Virginia or somewhere. And I thought, I'm a farm girl from Pennsylvania. We both know where we're coming from. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, it is. And she said, well, we're not going to tell him. You're still, <laughs> you're still the best person for this job. Right. So it was a lovely, you know, it was lovely, a lovely connection to her. I got, and I was actually, I think, trying to move to Europe at that time, or I was going to go over there to look for work. And I said, she gave me the timeline. I said, well, I'm supposed to be in Europe at that time. She goes, I'd come home if I were you. Mm. And so I did, I came back, I did the job. And ultimately anybody then after that, I could walk into agencies and say, well, I just finished this campaign for American Express. And it's amazing how much credibility that gave me even with a limited portfolio. At the time, I was showing only original work, even original Mordon Sage pieces were what were in my portfolio when I had my first reps. I mean, I cringe now when I think about it, but it was all original stuff because I couldn't bear to put the kind of work that I did on slides, which was the way everybody was looking at, you know, they were looking on transparencies and I right. just couldn't do it. Right. Wow. <laughs> you know, I love that story. Can you discuss or share your thoughts on the difference between fine art photography and commercial photography? Or, you know, in my case, weddings and portraits, I'm not sure if you put that in the commercial category, but, you know, define fine art photography. 
Well, I don't, I don't know that there actually has to be a difference between them, Lucy. And I think today, more than ever, what you're seeing commercially quite often is, is also very much fine art because we can do so much more with the images perhaps today. I'm still old school. I still have a dark room. I still love working that way. And so for me, the fine art was more that I always just made it for me. I didn't make it for a client. And when I did work commercially, it was a niche work. You know, I was asked to make the kind of work that I was making for myself for galleries, which would have been considered fine art. Even my commission portraits were almost always a black and white. And because I worked with the figure a lot, many people, even if they hadn't intended to do it, would sort of, women always said to me, I don't care what their age was, well, shouldn't I at least take off my shirt? You know? <laughs> So my, my commission work, bringing it to your audience, my commission work ended up being my personal fine art work also because most of my clients got nude for me mm. uh, or naked, which is, you know, really more of the case. Define naked versus nude. Well, I think you can be, you know, I think you can still be naked. I think you can still have your clothes on and be naked because I think that the photographs come from your heart and from mm. the inside. So there's a wonderful essay by Jean Berger in uh, Ways of Seeing that everybody should read that talks about that. I feel like I was always just making my own work for me and my point of view and hope that other people liked it, but I was really making it for myself. And it's still, my, my work is still to this day pretty much one of a kind and anything that I do in additions is is you know, at the latest editions or the reflecting on the edge are probably in editions of five, no more than ever 15. So I'm, I still do it because even though you can make many images of the same thing now and have beautiful digital reproduction, I'm not so interested in that. I never made a black and white print. Two of them look alike either. So that's mm -hmm. just, that's, that's my nature. Fine art. I, I mean, there are many very successful commercial photographers today that are, I would say, making beautiful, fine art. If you look at, let's say, look at dance, Lois Greenfield is a very successful dance photographer, always has been, and she did it years ago, and she was advertising the watch company, and, you know, making good money doing it. She's still making these beautiful images of dancers, but they transition to other kind of accounts that could use that sort of work, let's say. Right. You know who I'm talking about, all the dancers. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. thing. By the same token, you know, they make an exquisite gallery exhibition and are sold as pieces that are just art. I'm thinking of Joyce Tennyson. Do you know Joyce? Yeah, she's a very good friend. I, I thought so. Which, hey, I need to call her and get her on my show. And she started out very much as a commercial photographer and does so much beautiful work on her own, you know, her own creativity for herself. And I have two novels that have her beautiful fine art as the cover images. So right. I, I love that thought that it doesn't have to be, I'm an artiste or I'm getting paid for my creations to sell something or, you know, be in someone's home. I mean, for me, I feel like I've created a piece of art for my clients when it seems like a total stranger would enjoy it. Yes. So if I do a nice picture of a family all, you know, sitting on the grass and they've got their arms around each other and they look like they really love each other you know, it's well lit and nice and they treasure it. I don't consider that fine art. But then if I capture one of the children, let's say, running through the grass and the light 
is striking them just so and there's a joy or you know a feeling then to me that is often something that total strangers might you know want as art in their walls so you know that's my simple definition in my portrait world that i communicate to my clients about what might set me apart or why they might want to have a wall portrait of let's say that child running through the grass full of joy is it's not just about here are our faces but that there's that art aspect it's yeah. the feeling i think i think photographs that convey any feeling that can be more universal takes it out of being their child only and being a portrait that, or a photograph that somebody else can look at that also has a child running through the grass. Right. I mean, look at, you know, look at a Keith Carter. When you started talking about the child running through the grass, I saw the two photographs. I thought of Keith Carter with the jar with the two children looking in a jar, holding a, a mason jar of some kind, I think with a fish in it. And or W. Gene Smith's photograph of the two children going through the arbor, the black and oh, white. That's one of you my all-time faves. So, yeah. So it's, it's the same you know, it's a universal feeling. And I think that that can happen in people that are doing portrait photography and those family portraits and stuff. I think you can still do that. Part of that also comes in educating your client to understand that not every photograph has to be, you know, everybody dressed in white on the beach. And that's beautiful. I'm not saying it's not making it a, a bad photograph. It's very beautiful. You know, your clients have an idea in what that should be for their wall and you can deliver that picture to them. But I think if you take pictures that are more for you, that maybe is a direction or more kind of that you might want for your portfolio if you were thinking of having an exhibition in a gallery. I think if you took, you know, within every shoot that you did, you included a little bit of that in your shoot and say to say to your client, oh, let me try something else. Right. But those are kind of for you. But if you present them to your client, quite often, I think they would see the advantage of it. I, I just, if I may tell a story that just came up a couple of days ago mm -hmm. involving Hallmark. So I taught creativity classes for Hallmark a number of years ago. They were actually, I think, the first people I ever taught my own private workshop for or my own workshop where I was the only instructor and it was in the mid 80s they were the first ones because I'd had a few Hallmark students in the Provence class in any event my what I said to Hallmark was even though Hallmark owns everything that is done by their photographers and everybody else I said I won't teach this class unless one of the days whatever the students make belong to them they can share it with Hallmark if they want it can become product for Hallmark if that's the case but one day has to be for them to shoot just for themselves whatever assignment I give them they let me do that but they weren't totally happy because you know that wasn't what the class was supposed to be about but in the end on that day to the student in the class, and there were 18 students, and they were all, you know, writers, designers, photographers, everybody that was creative in Hallmark, because the class was called, you know, it was a creativity class. And the irony was that to the person, everything that they did on that day was so much better, mm. so much intimate, so much more intimate, with so much more feeling than the more contrived commercial pictures that they would make for what was selling at Hallmark. Right. I mean, you know, puppies in a box, you know, being some of their favorites. Mm -hmm. you know, when, I, when I took this assignment with Hallmark, I was even shocked I was doing it. But the truth is, it was one of my most interesting workshops I probably ever taught because I had 
so much creativity in it, even though it was being done for a commercial use. But on that one day with those private, they were very private personal assignments I was giving people. Mm -hmm. The work was astounding. Amazing. It reminds me of at one point in my career, I did some pro bono work for San Diego County adoption for calendars. And the film was paid for. It was black and white. I got 235 millimeter instead of my, you know, Hasselblad. There was no audience to photograph for in a way that would be sellable. Do you know what I mean? I had no thought of how can I create images that this client will buy. My thought was, I'm going to shoot this. I don't normally like the word shoot, but in this case, it feels right. I'm going to shoot this however my soul and my heart wants to. And so I did black and white film. I didn't have to pay for the film. The lab, George's camera in San Diego, California, (laughs) they're still around actually. They donated the film and they donated processing. And my goal was to sell those children to people that were going to fall in love with them. My goal was to find their soul, which is, you know, I'm a kid. Children are, are my favorite thing to photograph. And doing that work changed my professional work. I started doing more, again, from my own heart and soul. All the kids but one sibling group in the two years got homes. People said, like, as people flipped through the calendar, it was for a calendar, people got tears in their eyes. And it was such a powerful experience for me to, after, at that point, was it maybe 15, 16 years in the business, to go back to my roots of just doing something that it was only the way I wanted to. So I get that. It, it makes a big difference. I think anytime that you do it from your heart. And the, the truth is that the minute everybody else gets involved with it, you know, it changes often the concept. I can go back to the one of the billboards I'm thinking of that I did in London at the time when I was doing that commercial work. I've always worked alone, but you know, they were paying me a lot of money. So they of course needed, you know, me to have a lighting person or a hair and makeup, whatever. They needed me to have a crew, I understood when I got there from the, you know, the agency that no, you gotta come with like people. So I got people, but I didn't know what the hell I was gonna do with them. But I had people with me. It looked more important. I just remember it was a big billboard and I had, it was hand painted and it was, it was called Shay's Lingerie and there were women lounging on in uh, lingerie on couches in this old castle in England somewhere. And, you know, I hand painted everything. And I remember there were pillows all around. They were lounging around on pillows on stairs or something. And so when I finished the piece, I took it back to the agency and I said, okay, here's the piece. I'm getting back on a plane, you know, are you okay with this? And one person, of course, they have to, says, well, you know, could that pillow over there maybe not be pink? Could it be deeper rose? Whatever. Okay, mm-hmm. I can change that. So then the minute they all got involved and somebody else wanted something and somebody else wanted something. And like I said, this wasn't, you know, you had to do it on the piece where it was very expensive. With We didn't have Photoshop then. But the minute I started changing that, then I had to balance the other side of the picture with something. And then somebody else wanted something else and somebody else wanted something. Well, in the end, I had to like start all over and repaint the whole picture. But fortunately, I had made two of the same kind of painted two when I was doing it. So I kind of ruined one. I still had one that was almost the way I had wanted it. I took them back into the agency and they're looking at it. I'm going, oh, you know, I think maybe we like the first one better. And I pulled out because I had kind of painted two at the same time in the same sort of palette. And, you know, I can remember the agency saying, my God, we'll never ask you to do 
our way again. <laughs> because I think if you're doing what you do and you love the way you do it, and that's what they hired you to do, they hired you for the way either you saw or your palette was. And I had that happen at least three times with hand-painted commercial jobs. And every one of them went back to my original way I had done it. And, and I think almost every one of them said the same thing, you know, but I always said, but if I didn't think that that was the best solution, I wouldn't have given it to you. You right. know, you hired me for what I do. Right. And I think if you do what you do and you do it well, then, you know, your, your audience will find you. I, I've always, I've, I've taught that way and I've said it to commercial photographers, fine art photographers. I've said it to everybody. Let your audience find you and you do what pleases your heart the most. And somebody will find you because if you don't, you're going to, you will be out of business or you will be a very angry photographer mm. going forward yeah. very quickly. So because the show is called The Profitable Photographer, I know that my audience is very interested in learning about how you make money from doing fine art photography. And one thing I'm hearing from, um, you know, what you just shared is as you were doing what you wanted to do and love to do from your heart, that made you stand out so that the commercial world was interested in what you do. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, I was hired to do almost every job I did commercially. I was hired to do what I was doing for myself as in hand-painted work or the kind of work that I made. So you started with the art and that led to jobs. Yes, I would definitely say I didn't go seeking so much of that work. It found me. Mm -hmm. I had an agent that actually found me. I had an agent in New York who never got me any work. The biggest thing I would hear, and again, you have to remember how things were at that time. This is all pre-digital, pre pre-Photoshop, pre-all of that. The biggest thing I heard from most agents was, oh my God, we love this work so much. We're going to hide it under our desk until we find the right client. Hmm. And I can remember saying after a while, but please give me a job yeah. so that I can continue to make my work. Because I was willing to, after like hearing that, you know, for months, because you understand I was showing them original hand-painted work or original Mordant Sage. Everything I gave them were original pieces that would have been in the gallery, quite truthfully. And so that's how I showed my portfolio. So I sold a lot of work actually to art directors. <laughs> they, they would buy the work, uh -huh. uh, but they still weren't giving me jobs. They were waiting for that special, you know, that special thing that, you know, they could put their name to it also because they would, they were, they liked the stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, so give me a cereal box. Let me, let me play with the cereal, <laughs> future cereal ad, you know, maybe do it my way. So the agencies weren't doing it, but in Europe, it was sort of happening a little more. And my rep in London who got me all of the jobs was coming to New York to bring one of her photographers from Europe trying to look for a much more commercial studio accounts. And she happened to see, she came to talk to my rep and she happened to see my portfolio and was like, oh my God, can you please put me in touch with this woman? And then she and I, within a week, within 10 days, I was in New York, I was in London with my portfolio and going to see all of the art directors. And that was not the way they did it in Europe. You dropped your portfolio. And I must've met 30 art directors within 10 days because I wanted to present my work the way I wanted it to be seen. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was the difference. And I would say that if I hadn't had the head injury, I probably would have ended up being a commercial photographer or a, a photographer in some other way. The pressure, I 
you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the right time for me to do that. So I went on to become an educator and make my living through galleries, through exhibiting. And then I had an, a different audience, which were my students that supported me beautifully through my career. I've been, I have, you know, I've lived as an artist since I was 35, probably. Mm. And I'm 73 now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So, Elizabeth, can you share with us maybe three or four ways that people who want to sell their fine art photography and are not interested in becoming commercial or, you know, my case, wedding portraits, like how do you get your work seen and sold as fine art? Well, first you have to have a little bit of a vision in the work that you're doing so that you can be known for something. There'll be some recognition. I think that's that's important no matter what you're doing. There's many other outlets besides galleries. You know, people are going online with the galleries. There's the social media, if you're of that ilk, which is what you almost have to be today to put it out there. You can You can look for a book market. Like we mentioned Joyce earlier with the book covers. I think of Sean Kernan had some beautiful book covers. And I've seen those just recently in a beautiful kind of gallery in Mexico. It was in a lobby of an art gallery hotel, but there were Sean's pictures that were his personal fine art, but that it ended up having been on a book cover, which is probably how they got seen and turned into these beautiful, massive pieces in this uh, gallery that I was walked into a couple months ago. So I think that you you have to find what the niche markets are today. Digitally, we're more visually savvy than we've probably ever been. Brick and mortar galleries are having a hard time struggling, but there's still a lot of online galleries or a lot of online competitions. I think first you you have to find who your audience might be. My audience for my work, more than even the galleries, were probably my students Mm -hmm. who loved me wanted to support me. They collected my work because they liked it, but also because they liked me. And so I think that you have to find how it is that you can work. There are lots, there are, there are paths to it. I, I think that most of it ends up being digital today right now. There's a lot of competitions and perhaps you want to put your work, you want to enter some of the competitions uh, that are really about art Mm. Uh, and see see where you stand with other people. I mean, that's one way because then at least your work gets up there and your name gets attached to it. If you win, you may not get any money. It may not make you rich at first, but you know, it's happening. I feel like if you believe in your work, it'll ultimately will find an audience. It goes back to letting the audience find you, but you have to put yourself out there. So, you know, there are still books being published. I mean, having a cover of a book, I had one or two recently in London. I mean, it's nice to see your work on that cover. Does it get you somewhere else? Yeah. Probably maybe, you know, your name gets attached to it. Mm -hmm. The one thing you want is always make sure your name is attached to whatever it is that your work is out there. I would say, you know, making beautiful work. I had some other student that was selling, he was from workshops in Tuscany. So he was photographing, you know, beautiful Tuscan scenes, but let's say fields of red poppies. And he, he was making a lot of money. I mean, he was enjoying what he was doing. It was still art. It was fun. He got to be in Tuscany making these pictures. And he was working with companies that would have been similar to stock agencies in my day, but you know, that are still publishing the work as posters or something else that mm-hmm. puts it out there in a major way where you sell a lot of them. So you make your money in the volume of doing it. You have to get yourself connected to somebody or a card company. You know, it's a harder way. You, you make less, 
that you sell more, let's put it that way, I guess, than selling one fine art piece. Because ultimately you'll get to the one fine art piece that people will want to buy to hang on their wall again. So what I'm hearing in that is that there are people who will buy our fine art as has already been produced. So book covers or cards or eye stock, or let's say an architect is decorating a space looking for art. Hotels, all those, you know, all those things. It still ends up being purchased in a commercial fashion. You're creating your own work and they're buying what you've created rather than like in your case, in the early days with the hand-colored work, they saw what you were doing and then they hired you to create something specific. So yes, there are avenues. You mentioned that you did exhibits. Do you think there's value? Can people sell their work in exhibits? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there are photographers that are, that are exhibiting, you know, in galleries still. It's just that a, a lot of the galleries have closed and I'm not so sure that many aren't more in, in this next year or two aren't going to be struggling. So, you know, the galleries, there's, there's way more artists now than there are gallery spaces. But sure. many of these galleries also have virtual galleries online. I think you're going to see a lot more online stuff, quite truthfully, happening as we go forward in the world altogether. So if your your audience is savvy toward that, then they may want to just be, you know, looking along that line because a lot of people are selling through different online art venues even big galleries i would say a number of them are selling through online art galleries and that's an audience and it, it's right. cert, you know it, that's certainly a place and if you have grown up digitally at this point and i'm sure many of your audience are younger than you and I are, Lucy. They have a you know a step up on this already. Right. Because they're they're a little bit. They know about it more right. so than those of us that kind of came in that transition. Right. Period. One of my friends, Abby Chamberlain, who I interviewed early in this podcast, is retired from commercial portrait photography and really concentrating on fine art and. She makes art pieces and displays them in, there's some collective galleries in San Diego and she sells pieces now and then, you know, we'll see, like you said, which ones can survive the collective ones. I think you have to pay a monthly fee to be in it. And we, as a group, I'm in a women's photography group in San Diego that I was one of the original members 30 years ago. We're still going strong with about 50 some members. And once a year, we have an exhibit somewhere that could be a coffee shop or a city hall. And I know that, first of all, it helps the women focus on what is their art. You know, they dig deep and evaluate what they're doing and present something. And there's, I find value in that. And then occasionally they do sell some pieces and just the activity of learning how to get a show or get in a gallery has value when you do it with a group of other people because you figure it out collectively, which is easier. <laughs> no, I, th- I think the collectives are a good thing because I travel a lot or just being around. And if I see one in a town that I'm at, I'll go in and there's a lot of beautiful work in it. So I thinking of one that's out here by Sacramento and I'm thinking of one that was back in Maine in uh, Bath, Maine. And they're collectives of not just photographers in, in these cases that I'm speaking of, but potters or painters 
jewelry makers, you know, so they're all in this collective gallery. So by being in that kind of a gallery, you pull in a more varied audience, let's say. Mm -hmm. Somebody who may not have thought about photography as art, but, you know, wants to come in and buy a beautiful piece of jewelry and suddenly they're standing there and they look up and they're looking at, you know, a photograph on the wall in front of the case that is affecting them in some way. And suddenly that photography has become art for them. So you get a bigger audience in those kind of collectives. Mm -hmm. And we have one here in, in Berkeley. And I, th I think that they're valid. I think that where a lot of the artists that the people making art today are like here in Berkeley, we have twice a year, you know, that they, the art that at Christmas and then they do a spring one also where we have a very strong, you know, the art walk and the community, you know, they're open a number of weekends and they're selling the work out of their studios. And people, I think for a lot of the artists today, that's, they're creating their own audience. They're making their art for themselves but for an audience that's going to come that you know again it's their clientele in a way like you would have your portrait clients like I had my students right. who became my clients so I think that that's a valid way if mm -hmm. somebody wants to be more I don't, I don't know about Etsy and those kind of places but I've heard other friends of mine that are that are jewelers and stuff do it selling art there mm -hmm. I'm thinking of artnet is I think it's probably artnet.com it's it's a big online that many of the commercial galleries you know the galleries that had to close their doors that at one point I think I might have had eight or ten galleries representing me almost all of them have closed I think all but one those galleries actually all are connected probably to artnet now in a mm -hmm. big way and selling mm -hmm. art through that place through through that collective you have to you know you're, you you've got to pay to be part of it and I'm not sure if they only take private people but you know if there's a collective or something in my case because I also own a lot of work from other fine artists in the world you know like Lucien Clerc and all these people that I've taught with so I own a lot of work from other people if I wanted to sell my Sudra prints I they would let me in to have my own kind of gallery where I could put my work with it I haven't done mm. it yet but it's it's a place where I've been thinking if I ever get organized enough again that I might do that so Artnet is a big one they they not only do photography but they would do painting and things like uh -huh. that Kind of the one that I see a lot of the galleries using. Interesting. You might want to research that also. So um, do you think that our group, Women in Creative Photography, could potentially have a, as a collective, have a presence there? Is that? It's possible. I think, like I said, I think the the rules are changing for everyone. Mm -hmm. These yeah. days. So what their rules were when I researched them a year or two ago, because I was, I realized I, I finally did an inventory of all the work I owned of other people's work or work people I've traded work with. And I realized I have 150 to 200 pieces mm -hmm. of other people's work. And I'm talking, you know, Sudra and Breha and, and Lucien Clerc and Bill Allard and, you know, geographic photographers that I've taught with. So I'm thinking of you know, I have I have some substantial work here, Willie Roney. And I thought, hmm, maybe this is the time because I don't have any children. So I thought maybe this is the time I actually, now that I organize my collection and realize that, that I actually consider either selling it or trying to put it together for a museum and have it be a collection that's something that I would you know, either donate out after I die, whatever. But it, it yeah. made me start thinking. You, you reach 70, trust me, you start thinking about <laughs> yeah. what am I going to do with all this stuff that I have? Yeah. yeah. And so I started uh, looking into it. And that's how I probably came to Artnet and researched them mm. at that time and had and called them and had some conversations. And at that time, as just Elizabeth Opalenik with private work, I don't know that they would have let me be on 
but I get their newsletters and everything else now. So somehow I'm, I'm, I get a lot of things from them, but I never took out it because it's a couple hundred dollars. I want to say maybe at that time, it might've been $400 a month. Oh, wow. I was seeing it with every big gallery out there was probably on Artnet and still mm. are. So of all of them, I nice. would say they were the most seen yes. gallery. So, so, so there are others, there are others like that, that let's say that's at the top of the list, mm-hmm. you know, budget might bring you down some and you have to research people that are like Artnet. And I'm sure if you just Googled, you know, other agencies like yeah. Artnet, you'd come up with a series of them. Have you ever been to Photo LA? Do you know what that is? Yes, I was uh, there last year. I exhibited. Oh, really? Yeah. This group that I'm talking about, at least every other year, we go up to Los Angeles for this, is it a three-day, is it a week-long show? It was a long weekend, I think. Maybe it was three, four days. I was, yeah, I don't know. I was there for three or four days, I remember. So there are maybe 50, 75 booths selling photographic art. And some are galleries, some are individuals, and... I bought a couple of pieces one year because I looked at an image and I burst into tears and I figured, okay, I, I guess I need to buy that. Yeah. <laughs> when you respond, you should. Yes. So how was that for you, Elizabeth, doing the show? So you had a whole booth and everything? So I've been there before and I was there with the collective and I don't know why I was thinking it was, maybe it was Women International because that was the other thing I was going to mention about the art fairs. And if you have a collective or you have some people or there are organizations, Spectrum comes to mind, that are like Art Basel, Art Miami, which is the same as a little bit like Photo LA, they're big art fairs. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that will go in and buy up a whole lot of booth space and then rent out a wall of that space to individual artists. So it's a way for you to be able to come in and be part of the fair and you would pay those people, if you sold something, you would pay them a percentage, like a gallery, okay? You don't have to sit there all day for well, you, you may not have to. They some some of them will be there, and I, and my experience. I'll, I'll go to I'll go to that since you brought. I'll go to my experience in Miami. I did it with somebody in Miami, but I realized they weren't doing anything to promote me. Essentially, they were you know selling me a wall space so that I could participate in a fair. So instead of spending five thousand dollars for a big booth, I was spending five hundred dollars, whatever. The, mm-hmm. I don't remember what the prices were, but I could have one big wall and be seen and be in the catalogs and be represented. But I, but I realized pretty quickly that they were also doing it for them and more promoting just who they were. And so I got in touch with the organizers and ultimately ended up with a page ad using my picture because the organizers liked my photographs. So they, you know, they featured me in their catalog promoting the fair itself, not not uh, promoting the person that I was renting the space from. And I also realized when I got there that while they were there to sell work, they had probably, I don't know, let's just pick a number, 10 or 20 artists, different artists, but they didn't know me. I was somebody that had just rented. So nobody's going to sell my work like I'm going to sell my right. work. Nobody's going to be able to talk about it like I'm going to talk about it. So while I hate doing those kind of things. I, I hate the, going to the Javits Center for, you know, just big conventions. It's just not my thing. I don't like them personally. While I don't like doing it, I stayed there the whole time mm. at the booth, at my wall, mm-hmm. you know, and also then when I took the time, we'd go and look at a lot of other people's work, but I stayed there so that I could talk to people myself because mm-hmm. that's, you know, who's going to know me better than I know myself or know my work. So you can do it 
either way. And that's, of course, your choice. But I was trying to keep it into my own hands. And I got into the their catalogs. I got into magazine articles. I got on the website because I had a personal conversation with the lady who was, you know, doing all the PR stuff. And right. She liked me. It goes Imagine. back to, you know, if they like you, you know, they like yeah. me. They really like me. So yeah. you know, th that's that's where you have to do it. Go to LA, it's mm -hmm. a similar thing. I was there with Freestyle. I'm on the advisory board of Freestyle. And they I was printing all of my stuff on this beautiful handmade Japanese paper, the reflecting on the edge series, the water series. And so it was being exhibited at their booth. I was the featured artist at their booth. When they were just talking about freestyle stuff, you know, there was there's a section of Photo LA where where you go into the lectures that there are also some commercial stores like like B and H or in this case freestyle because they're from LA or from Hollywood. So freestyle had a section there, and I was their booth. I had that, and another woman who did underwater photography. So she she had her images there because she printed on very big paper that freestyle sold, and I printed on this Awagami handmade Japanese paper. And it was lovely. So people came in, even though I wasn't one of the galleries, but you know, everybody came by our booth and saw the work too. And it didn't cost me anything to put my work on the wall. I've right. been there with a collective, the woman, the Whippy, I think we did Photo LA used to allow every other year or something. They would, they would donate out some space to some organization. So you could still check with them. They may still do that. Because I remember being part of the women in photography group that we had shows there once or twice I did it before. And I think I did it as part of a collective. Mm. So, wow, that's a lot of good information and food for thought. And Elizabeth, I feel like we need to have another interview <laughs> to delve into creativity because, you know, you've inspired me with your work for decades and it is so beautiful and it's so from your soul and you're such an amazing fine art teacher. So I'm thinking, you know, I've just scratched the surface of the <laughs> the abundance of goodness that is Elizabeth Opalinic. <laughs> like you have no idea. You're listening to a goddess in <laughs> photography. You are and, so sweet, Lucy. <laughs> well, it's the just the truth. And you know, I'm just so honored to know you and have studied with you. And I still am sad I was going to be spending two weeks in Italy with Elizabeth and then 9-11 happened uh, two days before. So ah, I still I feel sad that. that I didn't get that. And I have that beautiful photograph that you sent as part of the compensation <laughs> for <laughs> not getting to be there together. Stuff happens just like things are happening right now that are changing our plans in life. Anywho, I have two questions and I want to remind the audience to stay on for my summary, although it's going to be hard to summarize all of this goodness. So how do we get in touch with you? Are you still teaching? If people want to buy your art, you know, tell me how to get in touch with you and how to find out what you might be doing, let's say in the next couple of years <laughs> teaching. Okay. So I'm on my way out of teaching though. I'm, I've brought some of those classes home. I still take, I still take groups to places, but I think again, we may not be going. So I'm supposed to be going to Portugal and Spain next year. I teach in Cuba. I teach, I've been lecturing in China and teaching over there. I'd love, I, 
love to take a group there, actually. Those things probably aren't going to happen. And France and Italy are always my go-to favorite places for just going so we can sit and talk and make art and drink good wine. My website is very, has a lot of work. If you look at my website, you know what I do and I'm doing new stuff now, but it'll get there eventually. And I'm also working on a book about workshops because I think they were the things that changed my life. I think they're great things to do. So the book that I'm working on and that's going to consume me for the next six months is at this point, almost a hundred photographers telling me stories and then giving me a beautiful image of theirs for the book. So that's going to be my audience. I would love to have your audience be part of that because I think that is going to be a whole education in itself. But my website is www.elizabethopolenik.com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, probably just under my name. I don't know, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) Google it. You'll come to me, I guess. All right. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm out there. I'm, and if I'm teaching, I live in Oakland, California, and I teach dance and figure workshops here still. Mm. And, and Mordant Sage, perhaps, you know, private classes. But the dance, I'm thinking this year, because people aren't going to want to travel far, I may conduct a few of those classes more locally that people could drive to and we could be mm-hmm. in a space that's more conducive to being similar to the one that you took where you started with me many, many years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. in a nice house or someplace that people can be great, you know, fewer people. Let's see. So one little thing I wanted to let the listeners know, just in case you don't know what a hand painted black and white is, I'm assuming Elizabeth that you use the old fashioned Marshall oils. Is that when you hand paint? Yeah, no, I, I still pretty much hand paint with the old oils and I use, I use the gambling oils now and things like that on, mm-hmm. on art paper, but I also have taken it to using chalks and pastels on digital print. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I, the, the stuff on the Awagami handmade paper, those big prints, the biggest sheet of that paper, one sheet is $75. And sometimes oh. it takes three sheets to make, you know, three prints because you get head strikes to have one perfect print. So that's, that's a big expense right off. So I, sometimes I've learned to go in and just, change it to something else. So those other ones are my practice or I paint on them. So you can do a lot of other, uh, you can work off of digital medium. And there's a company in Rhode Island, and I'm trying to think of what his name is right now, and I'm sorry, it's not sticking to me. They're printing on digital paper, Ilford paper, so that you can hand paint on it. So they will actually... You send them a digital file, they make you the print, and then you can paint it like if if you don't have a dark room, let's say. So they're printing... I did tests for them last year, for them and for Freestyle, because somehow Freestyle was involved with the paints, I guess. And I tested, it started off as a digital print, but it was a digital print on darkroom paper. And so that that technology is now here. Uh-huh. So somebody could also do that. And then yeah. you can paint with oils or a lot of other things on, right. on what, your photograph. What I was wanting to inspire the listeners to do is get a set. You don't need a lot, you know, it can only be nine tubes of the oils that are made to be on photographs and play with that. What's so nice is it's very forgiving because you can put something on and wipe it off. And it was invented when there was only black and white photography and they wanted to make them color. So we're about out of time. So the other thing I want to ask is if you could just if there's one more thing in your heart you'd like people to take away from this conversation, what would that be? Be true to yourself. And, and I think if you look at your work, you know, if you want to enter the fine art market, then you have to make work that's not just what it, what it is, but what else it is. So that it asks questions so that when people do see it, they linger and they'll have the same reaction. Mm. 
you had, Lucy, with the piece you said you had to buy at Photo LA that you saw it and you went, ah. You know, and, and that's different for every single one of us. But I think if you are true to yourself, other people will respond in the end. Thank you. So uh, just a quick reminder to the listeners to go to iTunes if you'd be so kind as to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast and also share it with your friends because sharing is caring. And by the time you listen to this, I will have had 20,000 downloads. So I thank you all for continuing to support and listen. And I know that you're all like, oh my gosh, Elizabeth, I want to hang out with her. (laughs) So thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being on the show. You're very welcome. And it's Digital Silver Imaging that makes the prints. I just remembered their name. Okay. DigitalSilverImaging.com. All right. So thanks, thanks, thanks. Thank you, Lucy. Sending you the biggest virtual hug I possibly can. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. Wow. I knew this would be fun to have a conversation with Elizabeth and I'm sure that you all enjoyed it. Kind of hard to summarize. You'll want to get her book called Poetic Grace, Elizabeth Opalinic Photographs from 1979 to 2007. I imagine it's on her website and possibly Amazon. I, I didn't check on that. She shared about her experience as a commercial photographer and how she was getting work because she was doing her own personal work and the opportunity arose. She was in the right place at the right time to meet with, I think she said it was American Express, got that job and then that led to other things. We talked about art versus commercial work, what the difference is. And she pretty much said if it evokes emotion, it's fine art, no matter why you're photographing it, if it conveys a feeling that is universal. She really emphasized doing what pleases your heart. We talked specifically about some ideas for getting work sold, and we discussed some of the challenges with galleries right now that you can walk into, but there is a lot of opportunity with online galleries. There are places that need beautiful, universal photographs. It can be book covers. It can be in the iStock market, possibly Etsy cards, exhibits in buildings. So we can make our art and then find people who need something creative and sell it to them directly. She's done a lot of teaching, and that's one of the ways that she's made money from her art both because students have purchased her art, but also because she's selling her creative soul and her gift as a teacher. So I know a lot of fine art photographers, teaching is their bread and butter and also gets them known as artists. And I liked her thought about entering competitions, both online and most years up until this year. We have a beautiful international photography exhibit at the San Diego County Fair, and that's a way to get seen. I have sold some work from entering my personal work there. It's grown my commercial audience for people to see my work, and it validates me as beyond a, let's say, bread and butter photographer. She talked a lot about believing in yourself and believing in your work. Art fairs, that was an interesting thought. Ones that are specifically for photography or in general, you can have your own booth or you can have space in a booth or a wall. And so her parting thoughts were to be true to yourself, do the work that comes to you 
And the things that can be seen as fine art are not just photographing what is, but what else it is. So I challenge you to look at some photographic art, whether it's in a gallery once it opens or online, that are the iconic photographs and think about why that would fit that category, that it's not just what it is, but what else it is. And thank you again for being a part of the Profitable Photographer. And I hope you're all doing well and using, whether you're listening to this once the COVID-19 situation has passed or while we're still in the thick of it, be safe. Use this time to evaluate your life, do creative things. For me, I'm simplifying and I'm allowing myself to take some space that I might not ordinarily take to sit and listen to the birds or read a book purely for pleasure or for inspiration that is not business oriented. Do some art, see some art, just breathe in the moment, the day at a time. And, you know, I think that we're all going to be looking back at this time as a time when something grew that was new. So that's my wish for you. And also, of course, my wish that you and everyone you know and everyone you love is safe. So that's it for now. And see you next week. You have been listening to The Highly Profitable Photographer with Lucy Dumas. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share. To connect one-on-one and learn more about our coaching programs, just go to lucydumascoaching.com. Until next time, go have fun photographing and selling your work.